1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The great God of the universe, the one true God, set the Israelites free from their bondage in Egypt. He had provided for them through the wilderness as they journeyed to the land promised to their forefathers. God had been revealing His nature to them by giving Moses the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws... But the Israelites grew tired of waiting for Moses to return from Mount Sinai. They began to worship a golden calf that Aaron, Moses' brother, was pressured into creating for the people. We will see God and Moses react to these events as we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 32 verse 7.
0: And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get you down, for your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. My mind has such great difficulty placing these two events side by side. Moses up on the mountain, receiving all this benefits from the Lord, all the instruction in the presence of God, and all this ugliness going on right down below. But there it is, while it's happening right in front of the Lord, the Lord pipes up to Moses and he says, Moses, you need to go. You need to get down there, for your people, which you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have brought Ruin upon themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, for they have made them a molten calf and they have worshipped it, and they have sacrificed thereunto, and they said, "These be your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt." You know, I have heard people actually try to argue that God doesn't know everything, that He learns things like we do, that He's not eternal, that He doesn't know the future. Listen, He's up on the mountain, and He, he recites exactly what they've done. You're not going to be able to defend that position biblically. He recites exactly what they've done to Moses. You know what they've done? Let me tell you what they've done. Notice he calls them your people, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt. (laughs) You know, Moses, they're not my people anymore because my people don't do those things. In all seriousness, God speaks of his people, of the Israel, as if he's disowned them. And there's plenty of reason for him to do so. They've clearly violated the terms of the blood covenant. Whatever you want us to do, Lord, we'll do it. Okay, here's just 10 things. Not that much. and they've already blown it, you know? And yet, as God says these things, your people, who you brought up, there's so much sadness in it because that's not what God wanted. That's not what he wanted. And yet, he says they couldn't even wait till you got down the mountain with the first set of instructions before they've gone their own way. Now, why does God tell Moses this? Well, he does because Moses is the mediator of the covenant. He's the deal broker. He's Israel's appointed representative in the deal. So he needs to go down there and he needs to go repair things. Go get down. You need to fix this mess, Moses. But you know, before he can go down, the Lord actually decides, you know what? No, Moses, there's no fixing this. They're just going to do it again. So look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. Let's get some context. This is going on. The Lord turns to Moses. He's just given him those two beautiful tablets as a memorial of the time they've had up there. This beautiful gift from God written with his own hand. Moses had nothing to do with it. And now, all of a sudden, this happens, and the Lord turns to Moses. and says, Moses, go down there, and you need to deal with your people. This deal, this covenant's at risk because of what they've done. And then Moses turns to go, and he says, You know what? Wait a second. Actually, I know this people. I know what they're like. They are stiff necked. And so, you know what? Don't go down. Get out of my way. I'm not bothering with it anymore. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And then I'll start over and make a new nation from you. Now, Moses, you got to think for him, he's got to be going, What? Wait, wait a second. I mean, I mean, this is horrible news that they're doing this and you send me down, but before I even take a step, you recall me back and now you're going to wipe them all out and there's no deal anymore. Well, These can be a very confusing passage because it seems like God changes his mind on a couple of occasions. We wonder which, like, okay, God, are you kind of, you know, are you bipolar? You know, are you, you know I'll go fix it. No, you know what? Forget it. I'm done with them. You know, I mean, what's going on here Really? first thing the Lord is just, he mentions, I have seen, I have observed this people. And you know what? They are a stiff necked people. The word stiff necked means stubborn and rebellious. Israel had no problem bowing their necks to worship the calf, but they wouldn't even yield to this simple command from God not to make a graven image of him. And so the Lord, when he says, we gotta understand what he says first. He says, let me alone, which means let me rest. I'm done dealing, don't go down there. He mentions to him, I will make a great nation out of you. For Moses, the reason the Lord says this is because God had made a promise to the patriarchs. He couldn't just wipe them all out and be done okay? So God says, you know what? I made a promise. I will keep it, but I'm going to start over with you and, and wipe the rest of them out and we'll begin from scratch. This is an entirely unexpected sequence of events. It is confusing at first when you read it. In fact, it seems way out of God's character, even with the severity of their sin, way out of God's character. Even when he came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which was bad, what did the Lord say to Abraham? He came to Abraham and he said, shall I not tell my friend Abraham about what's on my heart here and what I'm about to do? And so he turns to Abraham and says, Abraham, the cry of the sin of Sodom, it's great, man. I need to do something about this. I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham's thinking, my nephew Lot's in that city, his family. Surely God's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he appeals to God. He says, God, surely the Lord of all the earth will do what's right. You're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 righteous, you'll save the city, right? And the Lord goes, of course, you're right. I am the Lord of all the earth, and I do do what's right. So if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And Abraham's thinking, ah, you know, I've been to Sodom. I don't know if I can get 50. How about 40? And the Lord's like, you're right. If there's 40, I still won't destroy the city. And finally, he gets him down to 10 because he's thinking lot. I don't know about his wife. I think she's saved. He starts going through the list. He's thinking, I know there's got to be 10. And he stops there. And the Lord says, if there's 10, I won't destroy it. And even then, we see what God's response is afterwards, is that he doesn't destroy it until he brings all the people out who were righteous. God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. So even in that great judgment, God was gracious and merciful and patient. So Moses is hearing this and he's going, You know, this doesn't seem to match with God's character. So to properly understand what's going on here, we need to establish what we already know is true. Number one, we already know that all Israel did not worship that calf. The Levites, we're gonna learn later in this chapter, maintained their purity, as we'll see later on. So wiping out the entire nation would have been unjust. Secondly, God's initial command to send Moses down to repair the arrangement by dealing with the sin of the people, that is what he wants. That is God's will in this. That's why he said that first, okay? Thirdly, Moses has just had an amazing 40 days with God. This turn of events had to be incredibly shocking to him, heartbreaking and frustrating. And you know what? Had the second option never been brought forth, God might not have had to destroy all the people. Moses might've went down and wiped them all out. I mean, can you imagine here? You know, Moses got these things. He's saying, Lord, it's been an awesome time. The Lord's like, you know what, Moses, go down there and fix these people. And Moses, has, he probably, I mean, that's a long march and he's carrying these things. He's going, I'm going to get these people, you know. And by the time he got down there, and we know he's got an anger problem, by the way, by the time he got down there, I don't know if he would have been an accurate representative of God's heart to the people. And so Moses hears the second option and it catches his attention. So in light of the things we do know, the traditional and correct interpretation here is that God had no intention of wiping Israel out. He longed to forgive. But here's the thing about forgiveness. It's not arbitrary. God doesn't just say, oh, forgive. Or he just forgives everybody. God doesn't do that. Forgiveness has terms. One must confess the wrongdoing. They must repent of it. And they must seek mercy by faith. It's that simple. Okay? You know, I I, I was in such a weird environment the other day. I was with a bunch of Christians, but it was from different groups and, and whatnot. And, and someone made the comment, you know, I'm, I'm so glad Jesus accepts me just as I am. He does. Praise God for that. And he said, without any apology. And I, I kind of stopped myself and I thought, the pastor part of me wants to speak up right now. The Christian part of me is highly offended and, you know, and worried for the other people here. But the human part of me is going to keep the peace and not, you know, raise a ruckus and go all, you know, Moses on everybody. So, But, you know, I heard that and I thought, man, that is false teaching. What do you mean without apology? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That very nature of confession means an apology. It means an admission of wrongdoing. It means, Lord, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm wrong and I'm sorry. You say to go this way and I get my mind in alignment with you. That's the way I need to go. And without that, there is no forgiveness. That's the Bible's very clear. And there's a second truth here. Not only does forgiveness have terms, but to ensure Moses would properly represent God's heart, God felt the need to test Moses. See, Moses had already had quite a few headaches from these people. And you know, would he stand aside and do nothing? Liking this alternative? You know, God, it's a great idea. Go ahead and wipe him out. I'm gonna watch. And lest we laugh, we know of a prophet who did exactly that, don't we? What did Jonah do after he went and preached in Nineveh? He went and got tickets to the best seats. He said, I'm gonna go up on a hill and i watch God wipe this place out. So lest we think that's far-fetched, it's not at all. I know Christians who are like that. They get all giddy when they see the wicked fall. They get all giddy when they see judgment come. And that is not God's heart because the Bible says, my soul takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Would Moses stand aside and do nothing? Or would he intercede for a people who didn't deserve it? Now you might be saying, wait a second, Will. God does what he does. You can't change his mind. The second part of that statement is true. We don't change God's mind. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. God doesn't change his mind, but God does change what he does. God doesn't just do what he'll do. God does change his course of action based upon our intercession. And if that's not true, then James chapter four makes no sense. Turn with me to James chapter four, among many other scriptures, by the way. There are so many conditional promises of God. As it concerns intercession, prayer, and asking God, these verses are very clear. He says, you lust or you desire and you have not. You kill, desire to have something, but you can't obtain it. You fight and you war, yet you don't have it. And here's the simple reason why. You don't ask for it. You don't come to me for it. And then he goes on. Sometimes you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss so that you can consume it upon your lusts. Now, what does that mean there? That's pretty clear to me. There are times when God wants to do something in our life, but he won't do it because he's decided that he responds to our prayers. That's simple truth. I remember we had a guy at Bible college and he came from a little bit more of a reformed background and he struggled with prayer. He said, why pray? We can't change God's mind, Well, I don't even see the need to pray. And I said, first off, God commands us to pray. I said, secondly, you can affect change through prayer. If I didn't believe prayer changes things, then why buy? Other. Prayer does change things. God wants to do something, but he has decided to restrict himself on what he does. He says, you know, if you call unto me, I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you know not. What is the idea that's within that? If you don't call, you're not going to see those things. So the idea is the Lord wants us to pray. He wants to move. He's decided the vehicle whereby he moves is through our intercession. It's the same way that God moves in our lives through our Savior's intercession for us daily. We intercede for others and God's moves. And there are times when we don't and God doesn't. Now you say, oh, that means that God's not sovereign and that means that we're in charge of things. No, not at all. God in his sovereignty has set it up this way. It's how he's decided it should be. Certainly if God wants to ignore our prayers and do whatever he wants, he can, but that's not how he's done things. Our logic doesn't get it. And so we get caught up on it and we shouldn't. Just believe the Bible and you're safe. Our prayer does affect things. Our trust in the Lord, our intercession does affect things. See, Moses refused to fatalistically believe, well, whatever God will do, God will do. no. He pleaded with the Lord, as we'll see in just a moment, according to what he believed to be God's heart, which is what God wanted in the first place. Look at verse 11 with me back in Exodus 32. And Moses besought the Lord his God. That word besought has so much meaning to it. It comes from a word that means to feel ill or to feel pain or to grow weak. And in feeling ill or experiencing pain and the weakness, the idea is God's words were like a gut punch to Moses. You know, he heard it. I'm just going to wipe them all out and start over with you. And he was like, oh, kind of receiving that gut punch in that weakness. He knows he's heard correctly, but it seems so off to him. It doesn't sound like the God he just spent 40 days with at all. And so in that position of just emotional and physical weakness, he pleads with God to not take this course of action. He says, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against your people? That's what God said. He said, now, therefore, let me rest. No more dealing that my wrath may wax hot or burn against them. I'm angry, but now I want it to burn against them. Listen, Moses totally gets why God's angry. But his problem is he's like, Lord, why does your wrath have to burn in this way? I love that it says here, and Moses besought the Lord, what? his God. You know, Moses had a relationship with the Lord. He knew what God was like. And so he prays in line with this known character of God. God, it doesn't sound like you for your anger to burn hot like this. And so he asks the question. Notice he gives the people back to the Lord. He said unto the Lord his God, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against whose people? your people. No, they're not my people, Lord. I do not want them. <laughs> he says, which you have brought forth out of land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand. Moses, I didn't bring them anywhere. They've entered into a covenant with you, Lord, and you have entered into one with them. They're yours like marriage for better or worse. And so he asks him, why does your anger have to burn this way? The why isn't a why are you angry, but why does your, has your anger brought you to this course of action? This course of action seems very much out of line with who you are and what you've done up to this point. Must your anger be acted upon in this way? The first basis for Moses' intercession is God's grace. He says, Lord, you're a gracious God. This doesn't sound like you at all. And so he says, I don't understand. Please explain. And then he brings up a second objection. And in this second objection, he appeals to God's glory. He says, for, wherefore, why should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief he did bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? The word mischief means for harm or for evil. Moses is saying, Lord, if you do this, then all the people in the earth, the Egyptians in particular, they're going to begin to think differently about your character. They're going to say, you know, the only reason you saved them from us is okay, so you could wipe them out too. You brought them all the way out here so you could destroy them. He says, Lord, they're gonna think differently about your character, incorrectly about your character. And you know, sadly, this is something the church does when we don't share the scriptures correctly with people. We can impugn God with all sorts of evil characteristics and then wonder why the lost don't wanna follow him. And so Moses pleads, he says, Lord, turn from your fierce wrath. He knows the Lord's angry, but turn from your fierce wrath. The word fierce means a very intense anger that means your face has become flushed and uncontrolled type of anger. Lord, turn away from an uncontrolled anger and repent of this evil against your people. The word there, repent, there's two different words in the Old Testament for repent. One means to change your mind. The other one means to relent, to show compassion. It means to change your course of direction. So it's not a change of mind, but a change of direction to reconsider your direction you're going. See, Moses asked the Lord to not do something that he believes would be wrong and would give God a bad reputation. So he appeals to God's glory. Thirdly, he also appeals to God's promise. He says in verse 13, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And you said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever. You know how I know that this isn't what God wanted? Because of all the prophecies back in Genesis, everything back there. This couldn't be what God wanted. Because when we look at all the prophecies back in Genesis that God personally made, that he himself made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob and the 12 patriarchs, it wasn't about wiping them out and starting with one dude again is about separating 12 tribes and blessing those 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes that had prophecies from their forefather, Jacob. Those 12 tribes that had been prophesied that they would go into Egypt and they would experience slavery there for 400 years until God would judge them. God would judge the Egyptians and then bring them up out of that and bring them into the promised land. None of that's possible if God goes through with the alternative plan. God could fulfill his promise technically to the patriarchs by starting over with Moses, but not specifically. Not in the way he himself promised them. And Moses makes a point of saying, Lord, you did this by your own self. You swore by your own self by taking this course of action, God would be violating his very specific promises. He would only be able to keep the general promise he made. And you know, this is exactly what the Lord wanted from Moses. And it shouldn't surprise us. You know, Moses is a true leader who loved the people, even at his own expense. You know, it calls to mind the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 15, where Paul said to them, I am ready to spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved by you. Moses knew these people would still give him a hard time. But you know, he genuinely loved them. He genuinely wanted to serve them. He genuinely wanted their well-being. And every good leader is like that. They genuinely care for the people. And so it says, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now you might be saying, wait a second, Will. I thought you just said the Lord doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. You're right. The word repenter is the same. It doesn't mean a change of mind. It means a change of direction. It means a change of action. So the Lord said, I won't destroy them. And they say, but he thought to do evil to the people. It's a bad translation. The word their thought means to speak. It means he changed his direction of the evil that he said to Moses he would do to the people. God never planned to take this course of action. God never thought to take this course of action. He only verbalized it. See his original instructions that Moses go down and he minister to the people and he bring them to a place of reconciliation with God. That was his plan. That was what he wanted. And now Moses is free to execute it in the right mindset. So verse 15, Moses turned and he went down from the mount. The two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both their sides. On the one side, on the other, were they written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon those tablets. I find it interesting that Moses comments on the tablets at this point, because you remember, he's the one writing this. And as he's writing it down, he must have recalled leaving the presence of God with those two tablets in hand. A beautiful present from God, probably looking at them and seeing all the intricate detail of God's hand and writing them out. God himself gave this to us. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. But he's making the trek down the mountain knowing what he has to face. This beautiful present, a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. As he's writing it down, he's recalling his thoughts at that moment as he's seeing all the detail there and everything they represented and how what they were doing now threatened all of it. What they had been doing down in the bottom of the mountain was threatening all the beautiful things that God wanted to do. Can you imagine the righteous anger that welled up at that moment, holding the beautiful gifts that God gave to him? God had done this awesome work in bringing Israel out of Egypt and now into a relationship with himself. God had been so faithful, been so kind and so patient up to this point. His work had been perfect. And he admires that handiwork and sees the perfection. Where is he heading now to? He's heading down to the work of man. and, And the man who had decided to throw everything that God did and just over a month, 40 days. And so in verse 17, it says, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He sees Moses coming unto him and he says, there's a noise of war in the camp. Joshua didn't have the privilege of being told by God what was going on like Moses did. and So Moses, with the hearing of understanding, could hear exactly what was going on. And he said, no, it's not the voice of them that shout for the mastery. In other words, victory. They shout because they won battle. Neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. It's not the cries of those who've been defeated. No, it's the noise of them that sing. That's what I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came near unto the camp, that he finally sees the calf with his own eyes. He sees that abomination sitting in the middle of the camp of his people. The Bible mentions, end the dancing. Now, Moses was not against dancing. The word here for dancing was of a sexual nature. We're going to learn in a moment that they were naked, so this is not good dancing. And in light of seeing it all right in front of him, he's not down the mountain yet. He's still up on the mountain, but he's in sight now. And in light of seeing all that, the Bible says, and Moses' anger, what? It burned. That's the same thing that God said. My anger is going to burn. And now Moses' anger begins to burn. Can you imagine what Moses might have done if he had come down without first pleading for God not to destroy them? That would have been interesting. You know, Moses had an anger problem. He was angry and he slew the Egyptian. The Bible makes a point of saying that. In his anger, he slew the Egyptian. In his anger, later on, he's going to strike the rock. And here, look at what he does in his anger. He takes a beautiful gift that God gave to him. I'm a guy, so, you know, I hear this... You know, I mean, there's these big, huge tablets and these things come hurtling down off the mountain and smash right into the middle of the camp. You got to be pretty angry to hurl something like that too. So, I mean, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them, shattered them beneath the mountain or at the base of the mountain. It's interesting. When Moses returns to the mountain later to renew the covenant, God tells him, before we have this whole time where I put you in the cleft of the rock and I show you my glory, go carve two tablets for me, new ones, please. And he makes a point of saying to replace the ones you broke. (laughs) (laughs) Anger is a destructive emotion, and God didn't want him to forget that. Unfortunately, Moses slipped again with his anger. While Moses is angry here, by the time he actually gets down the mountain... It seems like his actions are a little bit more under control. And so it says when he gets there, he took the calf. I don't know if he did this by himself. I don't know. I imagine he might have. He took the calf, which they had made, and he burned it in the fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it upon the water. There was a brook that was right there at the base of the mountain. He scattered all the dust of it in the water, and then he made the children of Israel to drink it. We don't understand this quite the same way that this culture did. The idea of eating something, they realized very clearly what became of it. And so realize what Moses is doing here is he's making sure this material will never be used for idolatry again, particularly the gold because you can't destroy it; you can just change its property. You know, it's melted or solid or whatever. And so he's making sure no one will ever use this again. By making the people drink it, it would eventually come out as waste and therefore permanently defile it, a fitting end for their vile actions. And now having dealt with the idol, Moses goes straight for Aaron to find out what happened. Moses said unto Aaron, what did this people unto you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Aaron, I know you, you're my brother. I know there was some pressure put upon you, and there was. He knows it wasn't Aaron's idea, but he's hoping that perhaps maybe they threatened him or forced his hand. And sadly, instead of confessing his own sin, Aaron lies. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn. I saw it when you threw those tablets. I don't want any piece of that. He starts to cast blame. You know this people that they are set on mischief. I'm so glad that Aaron wasn't the one up on the mountain because my guess is when the Lord said, you know what? I'm going to start over with you, Aaron, and wipe them all out. I bet Aaron probably went, you know what? They stink. Good idea, God. Start over with me. He says, you know this people, Moses, that they're set on rebellion. You've worked with them for they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. And as for this Moses, they don't like you very much either, Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. So I said to them, well, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And so they gave it to me. I didn't know what to do with it. So I just cast it into the fire and out came this calf and it's been bad ever since. Moses knows he's not getting any help from this guy. And so when Moses leaves Aaron's presence, I, I'm done with that. And that. That's not what I was hoping for. It says, he sees all the people were naked and not just naked, but the word here means free of moral restraint. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame amongst their enemies. The other idea is this is going to get out and it's going to be a horrible testimony. Then Moses went to the entrance of the camp, the gate of the camp, and he said, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. So all the tribe of Levi, all the sons of Levi, gathered themselves and said, look, We're on the Lord's side, man. We were faithful. We didn't worship that idol. Moses says to them, this is what God says to do here. I want you to put every man his sword by his side. You go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and you kill every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. Not everyone, but everyone that's still persisting in this sexual immoral idolatry. Everyone that's still morally unrestrained. Because Moses had said, verse 29, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. See what Moses had done after he destroyed the idol, made the people drink it and said, now you can't do this anymore. Can't use the gold to make a new idol. He said, guys, repent, set yourselves apart to the Lord because he wants to bless you, but we need to make this right. Well, some of the people who said, you know, we kind of like this whole thing, idolatry and big, huge drunken orgies. Let's do that. That some more, and when he saw that, that's when he called the Levites to him, and he said, "Go kill every one of them that you see doing it." And verse twenty-eight says, "The children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and their fell of the people that day about three thousand men. Three thousand out of two million had persisted in their immorality and idolatry. They were executed that day. Can you imagine the wrongness of executing everybody?" See, that's how I know it wasn't the Lord's heart, because the Lord doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Amen? I think it's easy to be shocked by Israel's actions in light of all they saw and what they could still see, you know, right in front of them, God's fiery presence on the mountain. But this is why spiritual idleness is so dangerous. It's why relating to God solely through our leaders stunts spiritual growth. The crazy thing is we would have done the same if we allowed either of those problems to creep into our hearts. This provides a valuable lesson to us never to settle for cheap imitations of a relationship with God. Go for the genuine. Jesus died for you so that you could know him.
1: There are only two directions for the life of a Christian. We can either move forward with Christ in a daily relationship, or we will drift away from him. There is no room for spiritual idleness. We must constantly be looking to walk with Jesus in our everyday mundane lives. As the book of Hebrews says, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will